Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemisphere film review podcast with me, Dan, proud owner of a recent puppy school graduate, Baxter, in Melbourne, Australia. Woohoo! <laughs> yes. <laughs> and me, Conrad, proud owner of a promotional It Too Red Balloon in Cambridge, UK. Oh, you should just uh, <laughs> place that balloon around the house. <laughs> Yeah, I'm frightening my housemates with it. We all float down here. (laughs) (laughs) In this podcast, we discuss overlooked, fantastical films, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part because creepy man-faced cats, alternate realities and trusting complete strangers in a bizarre world are the morals we stand by. Mm, Every time. Yeah. (laughs) How are you, Conrad? Oh, unfortunately, I'm not very well. No, no. Yeah, I'm coming down with something. So apologies if my voice sounds horrible today. I think it's a bit of a cold I have brewing here. How about you? Pretty good, pretty good. I swear... Conrad, you never sound bad. (laughs) Oh, thank you. No, I will do my best and hopefully people won't be turning the podcast off in horror. Oh, no, (laughs) of course not. Well, any mailbag today, Conrad? We do. We have some lovely mailbag, including an email from Neil Davis, who said you mentioned on the Return to Oz episode that the Clockwork Man TikTok was played by Michael Sundin, what you probably didn't realise that he was a Blue Peter presenter. That's a famous BBC children's TV show. Ah. And he was a Blue Peter presenter for a year, but he was sacked because he was gay. Ah. Wow. Yeah. Because they were very particular and... Not very uh, progressive in the 80s, unfortunately. Mm, and mm. he he unfortunately passed away a year after Blue Peter from an AIDS-related illness. Oh, so that's very sad. That very so sad. fascinating trivia. Mm-hmm. But he also has a bonus a vegan tip for me. Apparently, Oreo cookies are vegan. So who says you can't eat bad foods and be vegan at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. We also had a message from Pat Mack on Facebook, who also suggested Enemy Mine as a possible film for us a while back. Ah. And he said that he had never picked up on the mine in the title having anything to do with a working mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And he wondered if this could be a film that would be better or worse to see on the big screen. Mm, yeah, I wonder. Probably not good. (laughs) Anyway, Pat said that he could not stop laughing at your take on this being a never-ending story. (laughs) Did I say that, though? I don't even recall saying that. (laughs) I think you did, yeah. I think you said it felt like it was never going to end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, props to me for uh, coming up with a pun that I didn't even (laughs) realise. (laughs) 
<laughs> Wolfgang Peterson fun. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we got some great feedback from lots of different people saying what a great film Enemy Mine is. We had Theodore Salazar said it was a great movie. Can't remember how many times I watched it as a kid. Jeremy Mullen said great movie. Stephen Adderin said brilliant film. Mm -hmm. Somebody called L. Squig said great film. Epic, in fact. Oh. Anthony Membrino said loved it. And Sam Wiley said always underrated in the sci-fi genre. So there's a lot of enemy mind love out there. Mm, and I disagree with all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you might not be popular. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. So what have you got for us to look at today? It's your choice this time, I believe. Mm. I will just go and retrieve it from the oubliette. Mm. Okay, I'm over here. Oh, wow. What are these uh, creepy man-faced cats doing here? Ooh, looks scary. Hang on, I'll just grab this quickly. <sighs> so what did you manage to rescue from this strange, creepy, man-faced cat? Mm, well, today we'll be discussing the 2005 Jim Henson production film Mirror Mask. Mm. Ah, apologies from the last episode when I said this movie was from 2006. It's actually from 2005. Oh. So this film was directed by Dave McKean mm. and uh, written by Neil Gaiman, the very, very famous and well-renowned Neil Gaiman and also Dave McKean as well. I didn't realise Dave McKean is a comic book illustrator and has worked with Neil Gaiman on a number of his works. Oh, right. Um, and that's why this movie has that very distinct style. Oh. So this film stars Stephanie Leonardis, Jason Barry, Rob Brydon, Gina McKee, Dora Bryan, and uh, also Stephen Fry in a very small role. Yes, recorded in 20 minutes, I believe. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> it is a very small role. So what's it about? Part of a travelling circus, teenager Helena gripes with her circus parents wanting to run away and join the real world. Mm. However, <laughs> after her mother collapses one night and requires surgery, Helena is inexplicably thrust into a wondrously M.C. Escher-like world with sinister human-faced cats, orbiting giants, and, of course, an evil, selfish queen intent on plunging the land in dark shadows. Oh. As with every fantasy, Helena must go on a quest to retrieve the coveted charm that will bring balance and restore peace. But is this all a dream in Helena's head? Will she ever return to her reality? Mm. Let's decipher the enigma that is Mirror Mask. Ooh. Can't wait. After the break. So we are back to discuss Mirror Mask, the 2005 fantasy film directed by Dave McKean and written by Dave McKean and Neil Gaiman. I believe when they first showed this film to one of the studio executives, they described it as... Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast on acid for kids. So, <laughs> yeah. 
That's a pretty accurate summary, really. Yes, I guess so. It's an odd one because I had never heard of it before. You'd seen it. Mm, I have, yes. Ah, see, I had never even heard of it. And considering the pedigree of the people involved, I mean, certainly Neil Gaiman, who is massively famous for things like... Coraline, The Sandman, Mm -hmm. and Stardust, which is a particular favourite of mine. I love Stardust, yes. So good. And he's got a few series running on Amazon Prime like American Gods. Mm-hmm. And he did an adaptation of Good Omens, a novel mm-hmm. that he co-wrote with Terry Pratchett. So he's huge. He is. I'd never heard of Dave McKean before. Mm. And it's a Jim Henson production. So there's me all geared up for a big, lavish, muppety fantasy. Yes. And I did <laughs> not get it, which I was no. massively disappointed about. I just <laughs> do not understand. You think Jim Henson Company... We're going to see puppets. Mm. Not one single puppet is in this film because the entire film in the magical world is all CGI. It is. 100%. Yes. And it's a bit of a letdown. (laughs) It is, yes. So the Jim Henson Company was going through difficult times. I looked this up and apparently the Henson family sold the company to a German media conglomerate EMTV in 2000, but its stock collapsed. Oh. So they reacquired it in 2003. And I guess Miramask 2004, 2005, this must be the first project that they did with a comparatively low budget, $4 million, Mm. to try to get the company back on its feet again. And they wanted to build on the popularity of The Dark Crystal and The Labyrinth, which were both doing amazingly well on DVD. Mm -hmm. So they thought, children's fantasy movie. But they decided to do it with no puppets? Yeah. I'm just confused. I know. It's like if an Aardman film came out and there was no claymation. Yeah. <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you're Jim Henson. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So it's very peculiar, especially at the moment. I'm halfway through the new Netflix Dark Crystal series. Mm, I haven't watched it yet. You haven't. Don't w- tell me any spoilers. I won't tell you any spoilers, but it's amazing. I mean, and it's just beautifully done. Oh, it's wow. It's using all puppets. They've used, obviously, CG to remove the puppeteers and to provide set extensions and amazing visitors. Mm-hmm. But it's got, you know, it's a really lavish production. And I actually had the opportunity this week to go and see some of the puppets and some of the designs and oh. so on at an exhibition that Netflix put on in the BFI in London. Mm-hmm. I'll put some pictures up on our social feed. Oh, yes. Please do. Gelflings and fizz gigs and... Oh. Oh, they've really got into what made that whole thing magical and the world that he created, and they've just fully embraced that in 2019, big, lavish, epic fantasy production with Muppets. Yes. And it's great. Yes. And then there's Miramask. <laughs> so I, I was sort of really looking forward to seeing it because I thought, I've never seen this. I've never even heard of it. Bring on the Muppety action and there's none. Yeah. It's an interesting choice. It is. The approach they took to this, to be 100% CGI. Because when they enter into the magical world, the people are still real. So they've mm. been composited into it. Yeah. But it's just so obvious that they're just behind the big blue screen and they're not interacting with anything. No. And it really shows. And it kind of just looked like a 
really long music video. Right. Like if you muted the entire movie and you just played your favourite artist's album over it, (laughs) it would just be a a great music video. And I feel like in the music video world it works because it's just all visuals, Mm. there's not a huge amount of storytelling, and it's all just, you know, pretty colours and stuff flying around. But as a movie, it seemed quite muddled Mm. visually because... There was just so much going on. There wasn't a sense of going on a journey. It was more of a sense of here's a blue screen (laughs) landscape that they've just thrown a whole bunch of CGI over. And here's another blue screen landscape. Like you didn't feel like they were progressing anywhere. It almost felt like you were watching a stage show. Like they just turned off the lights and all the people were moving the sets around and they turned them on again (laughs) and you have a a new scene. It's like, we're here now. Because it was filmed pretty much like a stage show because they were filmed in a big giant blue room. Mm. And it was kind of shot like that as well. So yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I watched a lot of the behind the scenes on the DVD that I had and Dave McKean was going on about how a lot of the people that worked on the film, especially all the animators, were completely just fresh out of university Mm. uh, and never worked on a film before. It almost feels like it's like a passion piece. Like it's Dave McKean's first feature film. It's him just trying to figure out how to make a film, really. And he didn't have a lot of money and he just roped a bunch of animators that had no idea (laughs) what they were doing and said, ah, let's just make a movie. Yeah. Because I heard that all the live action filming and the filming of all the blue screen stuff with the real actors, that was all done in two months. Right. And then they spent the next two years doing all the other CGI stuff that went into the film. Yeah, and and didn't he give the artists, instead of having them specialise on, okay, you create characters, you do the compositing, you create the scenes, you create props, you know, instead of Mm. delineating that way, he would let the animators take charge of a whole scene and they would do everything in that scene, like they were creating a short movie, Mm -hmm. because he felt, just as a creator himself, that that would be more satisfying for them yes so what you end up with is lots and lots and lots and lots of short films all glued together yes that have no visual coherence i don't think no that's i felt like that i felt there wasn't a sense of you were in a world it felt like every scene was another world yeah it didn't have the coherence but in saying that the visuals were really amazing like you can't deny they were incredible visuals despite the cgi not being as good as it could have been. If you took a still from any scene in the movie, it would look amazing as a poster on the on your wall. <laughs> do you think so, though? Yeah, I really do think so. Like It, it was oozing Dave McKean's illustration style. Yeah, that's true. It had that sort of ink, pencil, almost two-dimensional look to things, even though it was like three-dimensional CGI. But, yeah, it was nice to look at, but storytelling why it didn't really work. Yeah, I don't know. I found, although I could understand that the flat look was governed by the underlying story mechanism, which is that all of these worlds that she's visiting in this fantasy experience, which she could just be asleep and dreaming, mm-hmm. they are all based on the drawings that she has on her wall. So yes. our main character, Helena, is an artist and she has drawn all of these weird 
weird and wonderful things. And if you looked on her wall, you could see all of them. And even the character of Valentine that she's with for most of the movie Mm. is there as well. So that's the motivation behind the flatness of it. But I just thought it was ugly. (laughs) To me, it looked like a flat, sepia-toned, busy, badly composed. Sometimes it would cut to a shot and I didn't know where I was supposed to look. The 3D animated characters are rudimentary at best in terms of their design and very low detail in their textures and very simple robotic movements. To me, it looked really like an early 2000s screensaver (laughs) for (laughs) two hours. And despite all of the dimensionality, it did just look flat and layered. And I didn't believe that she was there. I didn't believe that she was interacting with any of it. Visually, I just thought it was ugly. And it looked so colourless and sepia-toned. And because they couldn't give you any real depth perception and different focal lengths, it just seemed to have this vignette Gaussian blur sort of smudging all of the layers around the edges. So to me, it looked like a screensaver with Vaseline around the edges of the monitor. <laughs> and I, I did, really didn't enjoy looking at it at all. Mm. I mean, in terms of the time it came out, 2005, it really should have looked better yeah. than what it looked. Definitely. It kind of looked mid-90s Yes, CGI. that's what I was thinking. I was thinking of the Lawnmower Man from 92. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> had better, more complex characters than this. And that was 10, 12 years before this. So, yeah. Yeah. Not good. Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to the fact that the people, the animators working on it were just not experienced. Animators. No. They, it was low budget. They were paid probably pennies, <laughs> <laughs> and and they just had no. They were just learning as they went. It must have been a very very steep learning curve yes. for them to do this movie, and I do feel like it's ambitious as well because I don't really remember many films coming out in two thousand five that had so much CGI. No. These days, with all the Marvel movies and pretty much 90% of those movies being completely green screened, it's quite common. Yes. But, you know, we are in 2019, not 2005. So I think things have progressed and I think they were groundbreaking and even attempting that. Yeah. But yes, it did not work. And I found a lot of the footage of the actors in these environments, these CGI environments, because of the lighting that they used to film the actors, they had to change it digitally Mm. and it made it look very digital and flat. Which is bizarre because it was shot on film, but... It's so heavily processed that they do look flat and there are lens distortions on them that don't match the rest of the scene. So Mm. it's just not very well composed at all. Yes. And you're right, yes, in 2019 you're used to these big movies where almost the entire world is being created in a computer and when the credits roll, the reason that Marvel movies can have 18 mid- and post-credit sequences is because the credits are like 20 minutes because there are... (laughs) Thousands of people slaving over this. And then you watch the credits to Mirror Mask and they're over in like two minutes because there's only sort of 20 people trying to do this. It's ambitious. It's ambitious. Doesn't work though. Mm. It just looks like a music video to me. And a 90s music video. Yeah, I mean, like I said, 
It's just a passion piece. It's mm-hmm. a first step into feature film territory for Dave McKean. Mm-hmm. I believe there are only 15 animators. Right. And I, there's some behind-the-scenes footage of them, and it's just they're using these awful, like, almost 90s, like, boxy computers trying to <laughs> <laughs> animate this, like, 15 people in this tiny room. I think they were biting off more than they could chew. Yeah. The interesting thing is, I think the story is incredibly compelling. Uh, the characters are really compelling. I would love to see this film as puppets. Like, mm-hmm. I would love to see this Jim Henson style, proper Jim Henson style with puppets and, and the whole works of practical effects and stuff. But I think there is a whole plethora of other mediums that this film would suit as well. I think of, like, Coraline. Mm. So stop motion yes. would look amazing for this movie as well. I think even 2D animation. Mm. There's some behind-the-scenes footage of some of the storyboards that Dave McKean uh, made for this film, and they look amazing. Just mm-hmm. as storyboards, I would love to see this two-dimensionally animated. But CGI was just the worst choice <laughs> they could have they could have gone with in terms of trying to convey this uh, on film. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the story, I do take issue with you saying that it's um, rich and dense and fascinating because to me, isn't it just labyrinth with different window dressing? I mean, if I say to you, a young girl who has an active imagination and spends a lot of time being creative and living out fantasies argues with her parents about the responsibilities that they burden her with and her desire for independence makes a selfish and cruel wish about misfortune befalling one of her family members and is suddenly, after that comes true, thrust into a fantasy world where she has to restore a family member and makes friends along the way, some of whom reappear in real life when she returns back to her own life. Yeah. What does that sound like to you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there are a lot of films that that sounds like. It sounds like Wizard of Oz to me as well. And it's very, very similar to Return to Oz uh, that we've covered. It's similar to Labyrinth. It's similar to Dark Crystal in terms of going on a quest to find some shard charm thing uh, to restore balance to the world. Yeah, I, <laughs> I guess in that respect, it is kind of derivative. Mm. But I still like to, I, I have just such a soft spot for movies where, you know, I don't like the real world. I'm going to this fantasy world and meeting all these strange creatures and going on a quest and stuff. I don't know. I still like that. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's the classic hero's journey, but this yes. one, I just feel as though they were too obviously trying to recreate the success of Labyrinth, which mm. they admitted themselves. Yes. They were even talking about having David Bowie in this movie as the prime minister of the fantasy world, but oh, then they realised yeah. that it had to be Rob Brydon because the fantasy world is ruled over by facsimiles of her parents. Mm, mm, and mm, there's mm. a moment in it where somebody's manipulating a collection of crystal balls very much like David Bowie's character the Goblin Ah. King does in Labyrinth and of course you've got that moment where somebody leaps out in front of her and says you shall not pass unless you answer a riddle and I just thought okay so here's the sedidimus scene but the problem that I have is that 
okay, the hero's quest, the whole Campbell hero with a thousand faces thing, you could apply it to anything. But this is so specifically similar to Labyrinth with a female protagonist of that age. And there are so many specific echoes back to that film. And then it's just cluttered up with a lot of stuff that you can tell is sort of wildly imaginative and fascinating. But none of it really hangs together. Mm. None of it really makes sense. And in terms of giving you characters that you can relate to and you fall in love with, like Labyrinth, Ludo and Sir Didymus and Hoggle, and you like Sarah, even though she's a bit of a petulant cow at the beginning, to be honest. <laughs> let's, yes. let's be frank. But it's Jennifer Connolly. You can't help but fall in love with her as the film progresses. But this one, do you feel any particular feelings for these horrible 3D <laughs> computer animations or maybe Valentine because he's wearing a mask throughout that doesn't help particularly. Mm. I don't know. I just wasn't given anything to hold on to and with no story coherence from one scene to the next was kind of disengaged throughout the whole thing. Mm. I did find it weird that there were characters from you know her real life that were being portrayed in this magical world. Mm. That's similar to Wizard of Oz, yeah. uh, with all the people in her reality being, you know, the, the lion and the scarecrow and the tin man and stuff. But I felt like the characters were less so. Like her dad was just the prime minister of this world that was in one scene yeah. and wasn't that important. No. I just felt like the alternates of her real-life family weren't really, I don't know, replicated in a similar w importance mm. in the magical world. So I felt that that tie-in was a bit strange, like there could have been more characters from the real world in the magical world. Like mm. that mime guy, he just gets turned to stone straight away. Yes, <laughs> Pingo. Yeah, yeah. so... <laughs> So that, that was kind of strange. Some of the sort of metaphors of the film are quite interesting, how the fact that um, her mum has, in the magical world, is two people, the good queen and the bad queen. And mm. the bad queen, I guess, is symbolising her... Does she have cancer? Is that what she has? Yeah, I think so. So she's all dark and menacing-looking mm. and gothic very early 2000s gothic <laughs> so that was kind of interesting but yeah i guess it, it could have been developed a bit more mm. well it's the alternative reality was a flourishing city of entertainers i think that's what they all are like valentine who's the the male character that she spends most of her adventure with mm. uh, is a juggler i think yes and this world is ruled over by facsimiles of her father and mother but it's now a place that's under siege from the shadows with the queen in a coma or dying because of the actions of an evil twin version of Helena who's stolen this vitally important mirror mask and run away. It's such a gossamer-thin metaphor for what's happening in Helena's own life. Mm. I mean, if I woke up from this dream, I'd be so disappointed with how unimaginative my brain is in turning my real-life dilemmas into a fantasy world. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they don't do anything particularly rich or interesting with the fantasy counterparts of her real life. I, I did like the, the point of, because she was thinking she was dreaming the entire time, but then she finds out every time she passes by a window, she has a glimpse into her real 
reality yeah. and seeing her be a rebellious teen, you know, start wearing makeup and piercings and ripped clothing and stuff and yeah. being that very angsty teenager and, and rebelling against her parents and stuff. So yeah. Kissing boys and eating chips, I think, is what she said. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting seeing the fact that she was witnessing herself grow up and not liking that. and, mm. and But it like in reality, that's what she would have done if she continued to act the way that she was acting in terms of pushing her way appearance and, and trying to run away from home. I don't know. I found that quite an interesting way of conveying it across. Yeah, that's true. And and that, that moment where she's looking at herself and then her, you know, angsty self looks back and, and sees her. It's, I got kind of shivers. Like a, it was a chilling kind of moment that, is this real? Like maybe the daughter of the magical land did go into the real world. And I don't know. I felt like that could have been explored even more, Mm. but they didn't really touch upon that. Yeah, that would have been interesting. You're right. I mean, having her go through her teenage phase and for her inner creative, imaginative child being locked in this fantasy world, looking out the windows, powerless, Mm. as this evil version of herself destroys her life and her relationship with her parents. Yeah. It's quite a good metaphor for what happens to you when you go through that terrible hormone fueled mm. period of your life. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, it's not developed particularly. It's hinted at in a very interesting way. Mm. I did see an interview with Dave McKean mm. and he was saying that he was quite inspired by a lot of the silent films that came out in like the 20s and 30s, uh, like especially, um, what's that director? Melier? Melier? Oh, right, Melier? yeah. Uh, so a lot of his films are very surreal and they have that kind of, yeah, uh, sepia tone mm. um, sort of vignette look to it. And so he kind of tried to replicate that with the similar colour palette, I guess. And also yeah. he said that he really loved those silent films because there were lots of visuals and things. You didn't really know what they were. Mm. Like you, You're trying to kind of make out all these kind of layers of visuals. And he tried to do that. But in doing that, it just, yeah, it made it. A little bit muddy. Yeah. There was just too much going on. Yeah, and I was watching it in HD as well, but to me it just looked like an upscaled DVD. It just looked terrible all the time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just ugly to look at, which is a shame because Dave McKean's artwork is not ugly. It is Escher-like and scary, some of it quite dark and twisted, but it's not Mm. ugly. I don't think. Although, I have to say, I think the card that Helena takes to her mother in the hospital, which makes her look like some hideous cross-eyed monster yeah. <laughs> is pretty grim. I'm not sure how that was supposed to make her mother get well soon. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, like there was just so much on screen, mm. just lines and little scribbles. And, and I mean, I know he was trying to convey his style of illustration, but... There was just too much yeah. all the time. Yeah, and as I said, compositionally, sometimes I didn't know where I was supposed to look, mm. which yeah should never be the case in any well-composed shot. Mm. But the live-action stuff is similarly inept. I mean, from the opening of the movie... It's a scene outside the circus and the mother is selling tickets and then Pingo takes over because she goes looking for Helena. And you go from this medium close-up of Pingo, 
who's mute and just whistles and waves his fingers to speak, which must be yes. really irritating. <laughs> and then you cut from that to a shot of the customer that he's talking to. And it's this really unflattering forehead to chin close up of this person through the window. Mm. And it A, doesn't match the previous shot. B, is the most hideous composition that you can possibly do to a human being. <laughs> and the whole scene is ADR'd in post. From that opening scene, I thought, oh my God, what am I in for? This is so inept. This looks like a cheap British movie from the 80s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dave McKean did admit that he had never directed a movie before. He'd done short films, but he'd never actually directed actors in any meaningful sense. I think he'd had actors in masks and he said that he essentially puppeteered them in his short movies. Uh -huh. Whereas this is him actually doing the job of a director of actors in scenes. And you can see as the movie progresses that he's sort of learning as he goes because some of it is a horrible miss and some of it works. Yeah. There are some lovely scenes in there. Yeah, you're right. It did look very amateur mm. in terms of filming. Like oh, the live action stuff. It looked low budget. Yeah. And it didn't really look like it had even been graded no. as well. It just looked super raw, mm. raw footage, very grey. Yes. Everything looked like it was from, I don't know, East Enders or something. Well, exactly, yeah. That's what made me think of Britain in the 80s, because when you look at something like Extro, if you remember that from whichever episode yes. that was, where you suddenly realise, wow, in the 80s, Britain was a dump. <laughs> Awful place to live. Yes. It has to be said, Brighton does not look great in this movie either, especially the block of flats that she's living in. Mm. It looks like oh, it looks post-war. It looks terrible. It does. <laughs> it's just a concrete cube, yes. It's deteriorating. Yeah. It looks like she's living in a war zone. It's terrible. I do feel like he tried to do the sort of Tim Burton style in terms of like a lot of very wide-angled, almost like fisheye lenses mm. to make everything look a bit bizarre. <laughs> um, but that was in the real world. Yeah, I did feel maybe the actors didn't quite give it their all as much as they could have done. Mm. Um, because I love Rob Brydon. I know him from, there's a TV show called Gavin and Stacey. Oh, yes. Where he, <laughs> he's so good at that <laughs> yeah. as a Welsh man. Glenn, yeah. And I've seen him in lots of other things as well. And he's incredibly funny. Yeah. Um, I think he did all right in this. Like, I, I wish... He had more of a role in the magical world. Mm. He was so sidelined. Yeah, and a better mask as well. He just seems to have two pieces of tin foil. Tin sort foil, of yeah. Twisted <laughs> in front of his face. Glued on his face. Yeah. <laughs> That's terrible. Which is a shame because the design of a lot of the masks is really quite amazing. Like the one that mm. um, Jason Barry is wearing as Valentine. And it's got this stripe on it that then continues into the makeup on the bottom half of his face and these tiny eyes and these pyramid-like spikes at the top that's then reflected in his actual hair that's all gelled up into these spikes across the back of his head. And yeah. Yeah, it's really nice. He didn't enjoy wearing it, apparently. Looking through those tiny eye holes gave him migraines. Oh, wow, okay. So he did not have a good time with it. <laughs> but the design of some of it looks great. And then you've got Rob Brydon with a bit of Baco foil in front of his face. It's just terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, the performances are good. I mean, in places, I think Stephanie Leonidas does as best as she can while standing on a blue screen stage talking to nothing. Mm. She was 
21 at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, she doesn't look it, does she? She looks sort of... No. I would guess sort of 15, 16. Yeah. Which I think is what she's meant to be. And then you've got Jason Barry as Valentine, who does reappear in the real world. And he's 33. And Wow. Not to be rude to him, but he looks... 33 to me? He looks no. like a 30-year-old no. man. Do you not think so? I don't think so. I think he I does. think he looks mid-20s to me. Do you think so? Yeah. He was in Titanic. He was Leonardo DiCaprio's best friend in Titanic. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, right. Yeah. So to me, he looks like a 30-year-old chatting up a 16-year-old. It looks all kinds of wrong to me. Yeah. The In the magical world, I think he looked older mm. than he was supposed to look because especially when she has that weird premonition with her mother and her mother's like did i dream you a boyfriend yeah and i was like a boyfriend Oof, i hope not he looks so much older than her. yeah <laughs> that can't be right yeah but she does meet up with him at the end of the movie in the real world and that's what we're left with is the possibility of them having a relationship which is a bit disturbing yeah we should be calling someone this is not good <laughs> Oh, I found his real-world face, like his actual face, looked younger than his mask face. Right. I don't know how that works. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia have you pulled from the mirror for today's episode? So, this film is a Jim Henson company production. When the studio kind of got involved with this film, Dave McKean and Neil Gaiman got to stay at the Jim Henson house Ah. to kind of continue writing uh, and kind of uh, finalising the script for this film. And there's there's like a panel, I think... Comic Con, and Dave goes on about how it was really strange staying at the house <laughs> because Jim Henson, you know, he loved his work, so there were just Muppets everywhere. Right. Dave was saying that if you squinted in the drawing room, it, it looked like this kind of classical Edwardian uh, drawing room. But once you kind of mm. focused on what you were looking at, you would see instead of a Degas painting, it was it was Miss Piggy in the <laughs> in the tutu, or like <laughs> another painting with like Kermit the Frog on a swing or something. So it was like a really, <laughs> I guess, a really surreal time that I had just staying in, in this house. <laughs> oh, I would love to see that. Yeah, me too. I bet that was fun. <laughs> and that's our trivia. Well, I guess we should really talk about the score for this film. Oh. What did you think of the progressive, easy listening <laughs> jazz? Right, okay. Uh, knives out. Sorry, I hated this. I thought it was terrible. It was off to a bad start from the opening titles, which to me sounded like a drum machine falling down the stairs while a saxophonist warmed up in the corner. It just <laughs> <Yeah>. sounded <laughs> awful. It's There's just random drum beats popping up. I suppose it's very sort of 2000 techno, easy listening, where instead of maintaining some sort of steady rhythm, there'll be a kick, and then half an hour later, 36 percussion instruments all jangling together <laughs> at once, and then silence. Yeah. for another half an hour uh-huh. and meanwhile just 
random woodwind noodling over the top of really amateurish <laughs> synthesizer stuff. Yeah. And it's just sort of layered over the whole movie with no sense of drama or emotion or pace behind it. It does nothing to enhance the scenes. It's just sort of laying there like somebody left an easy listening CD on that you have in a spa or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. Kenny G for your meditation <laughs> session. Wow. It's just awful. And then and then when it gets to the dramatic part of the movie towards the end, he is leaning very heavily on a sample CD called Symphonic Adventures, which was a loop library that was created by East West oh. in 2000, 2002. And I recognise it because... A, it was used on everything, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the X-Files around that time to give okay. synthesizer scores more of a sense of a symphonic weight behind them. But also I used it myself on my first film oh. score. So, you know, I'm right. just as guilty in the early 2000s of being given the task of creating an orchestra and just falling back on this loop library. But mm -hmm. yes, I know that Ian Bellamy is a friend of Dave McKean's and a very talented saxophonist. But I hated his score for this movie. I'm sorry. Mm. I don't understand why they thought intellectual jazz, I would call it, mm. was a good idea for a children's fantasy film. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have something different. It is. It is. It's not your usual orchestral fantasy score. Mm. I think there were some elements of the score that was effective. Some of the kind of more dreamy sequences that kind of worked. But, uh, yeah, it just oozed a sense of kind of pretentiousness mm. that shouldn't be in a film like this. Yeah, It's music that 50-year-old men that like <laughs> jazz would listen to. And it's not the sort of music that you should have in a kid's fantasy film. No. And I did find the music was way too happy. Yeah. It should have been a little bit darker, like a little bit more foreboding. No, you're uh, quite right. A lot yeah. of the music was just too sparkly and far too much saxophone. <laughs> I love saxophone, but far too much in this movie. Yeah. I guess if you're going to go with a saxophonist for your composer, you're going to end up with far too much saxophone. But, yeah. No, it just doesn't lend the film with any kind of drama or threat. There were a few scenes, especially I'm thinking of that kind of music box scene where yeah. Helena is getting dressed by these music box marionette puppets. And the scene is accompanied by close to you the mm. Bacharach song but it's been covered in a way that's very bizarre it's got these reharmonizations with the vocals and it's kind of music boxy and it's I think that really works I yeah watching that scene again I love it I love that scene I remember loving it when I first watched it and watching it again yeah Still an effective scene. It is, yeah. To have a Carpenter's classic like Close to You turned into something that's vaguely disturbing is quite an achievement, I think. Yeah. This Swedish singer, Josephine Kronholm, who provides the vocals, did a really good job with some very difficult harmonizations from the sound of it because yeah. they are not the yeah. chords that you're expecting as that song progresses. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she is a Swedish jazz singer. I think she's uh, a friend of Ian Bellamy's. Right. Okay. And I don't know what it is with all those Scandinavian singers 
they have a, such a strange tone yes. to their voices. Yeah. Like I think of Björk and there's a band called The Do, the singer that is like Finnish, I think. Mm. They all have such a strange timbre to their voice that is so alluring. Yes, and it's across the whole of Scandinavia as well. I remember um, <laughs> Gollum's song at the end of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which is performed by Emiliana Torini. Oh, yeah, I love her. Yes. She sang that? Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, and she also okay. has that sort of strange, mystical, but delicate and fragile. I don't know. It's I can't describe it. It's just an amazing tonal quality that they have. That yeah. I just love. I really wish that utilized Josephine's vocals in the score as as more of an element mm. throughout the film rather than just like yes. that one song and the credits and that was it. Yeah. Because less saxophone. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Less saxophone, more Josephine, I think, definitely. <laughs> that gets my vote as well. Because mm. it could have been sort of a, a the voice of Helena in some way. It's such a film that is led by a female perspective. And the big bad in the movie is uh, her mother and also the dark side of herself. Mm. I mean, it's such a fascinating exploration of that. Or it could have been. Mm. I think having a stronger female presence on the score would not have been a bad thing. Exactly, exactly. I also felt that there could have been more metaphors in the magical world Mm. as well. Like, what was the reason for... The flying fish. What was the reason for the monkey birds? Like, what was the reason for the cats with man faces? Oh. I have no idea what they kind of symbolized. They were just like weird for the sake of being weird. Yeah. So many things could have been explored a little bit more. Yeah, and I'm not sure how a kid is supposed to enjoy this, to be honest. As a child's fantasy, it's pretty grotesque, most of it, and quite disturbing. The level that the movie's pitched at, I don't understand at all, because the comedy is so childish, Mm. and yet the concepts behind what they're saying are so adult that it doesn't work for a child or for an adult. Yeah. (laughs) It's like when Valentine bemoans the loss of his juggler friend, who turns into stone right at the beginning, Mm. and says he will never be forgotten, and then dismisses it with an, ah, well, that's a very Pyrrhic punchline that Mm. a kid would find funny if it were delivered with a little bit more pace and snap to it, more exaggerated. But it doesn't work. And then Helena comes back and says, had you known him long? And Valentine says, who? Right. So it's doubling down on what's a lame joke to begin with and takes far too long over it. And it's slightly morbid. So it, it, I don't know. It doesn't work for kids. It doesn't work for adults. I just, I don't know who it's for. Yeah, I think... When I first watched this movie, so I was in my mid-twenties when I watched this film, Mm. all my friends loved it. Everyone was talking about it and saying, oh, this great movie, Muramask, you're going to watch it. And I kind of feel like that's the demographic. Right. So 20-year-olds. I think 20-year-old art students would love this film. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you're at the age where you're just appreciating visuals and sort of art for art's sake rather than something that's compelling as a piece of narrative, I guess. Mm. And you're not a kid, but you're not a mature adult that can critique cinema in the way that we do. Mm. So 
yeah, it's kind of like face value type of movie. It's I do think the visuals are great in this film. Yeah, they are a bit ugly and tonally just not aimed well, but I do think the visuals are great. You can see the creative intent mm. of McKean. He just doesn't convey it. And the team that he had, the budget that he had, it just didn't come across. Despite the film not really working, I would love to watch more of his movies, and he has done two feature films since, Mm. Luna and The Gospel of Us. I have no idea whether they're good movies, but I would like to watch them. I like his artistic style, but yeah, just wasn't executed that well in this movie. Mm. Well, Luna was reviewed very well when it premiered at TIFF, at Toronto International Film Festival in 2014. So by all accounts, that marries computer animation and a weird alternative fantasy world with a real world trauma. And again, starring Stephanie Leonidas, obviously a little bit older. Oh, right. (laughs) So could be an interesting one to visit after watching Mirror Mask, Mm, for sure. mm, mm. Because I do feel that he does incorporate childhood trauma Mm. into a lot of his stories and illustrations. He has a very dark sensibility and... I think this film could have gone darker, to be honest. Mm. I think they could have taken it a step further and it could have just been one of those movies that terrifies kids when they're young. Yeah, not with the Kenny G soundtrack. (laughs) No. (laughs) Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. So, listeners, I'm sure you're all peacefully dreaming about your favourite segment of the pod, the Moobly Awards, where we pluck our favourite parts of the film in a number of bizarrely comforting categories. Best quote! So my favourite quote came from the letter that evil Helena wrote to her mother just before she ran away, or after she ran away. And she says that in order to escape, she's going to use the mirror mask. And she says, It may upset things a bit, but you can't run away from home without destroying somebody's world. Very profound. Which I thought was, ooh, that's clever because it's working on two different levels because by stealing the mirror mask, she throws her whole world out of balance and sets Mm. off the shadows that are consuming it all. But it also plays in terms of reality, in terms of if you run away from home, I think your parents do get rather upset. Mm. Yes, they certainly do. My favourite quote was from Helena as well. It's, It's actually at the start of the film when she's complaining about, I don't want to be in the circus anymore, I don't want to juggle, and her mum's trying to convince her, no, you have to, you have to go on stage. And then she says, I want to run away and join real life. And it's just such a a nice kind of (laughs) flip on the the whole, you know, the saying of, I just want to run away and join the circus. It's like, no, not for Helena. (laughs) (laughs) No, she's there already. She wants to run away and just get a job as a bank manager or something. Yeah, yeah, just pay taxes, you know. uh, (laughs) Sit in traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Most naughty moment. I didn't find anything that naughty about this film. Uh, I was going to say, like, the CGI, but the CGI kind of looked 90s. So, oh, yes. it, it was really hard to <laughs> That's pick. That's exactly what I've written. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> if it reminds me of anything from the noughties, it reminds me of full-motion video adventure games like Myst that people oh, used to play on their PCs yeah, sure. in the early noughties. 
But when you're saying that of a major motion picture special effects, that's not great. Is no, it? it's not great. <laughs> Best hair or costume? Well, I didn't have a favourite hair or costume, but in terms of costume, I did find it rather amusing that the evil version of Helena is dressed the way an adult thinks a wayward girl would dress, but in the 1980s. So she yes. has these orange and green luminous fishnet sleeves with rips in them, giant hoop earrings, and massively overproducted hair that's going in all different directions. She looks like a backing dancer from an 80s Madonna video. <laughs> she really does. <laughs> it's what adults think like rebellious teens dress, just like 80s punks. <laughs> yeah. What about you? I mean, my favourite costume... I guess it was more an effect, but you've mentioned it. Valentine. I really loved his mask. Mm. You couldn't really see where the mask began and ended because his mouth was real, but then his chin beard was kind of part of the mask. Mm. And then his you could see the back of his head and that was real hair, but then there was also the mask here. It was oh, just really great design. Mm. Yeah, that's probably the best realised character in the whole movie. Mm. Yeah, certainly better than Rob Brydon with his Baker foil. Yeah. <laughs> they obviously ran out of budget at that stage. <laughs> Just search the kitchen drawer. <laughs> favourite scene. My favourite scene, I have already mentioned it. It's the close to you music box dressing Helena like a goth scene. Right. It was so great. It's just so creepy and just so succinct. Creepy, but really kind of beautiful at the same time. And mm. just an amazing arrangement of that song. Yeah, that song really is a highlight in the soundtrack for sure. Mm. And for you, Conrad? I did not have a favourite scene. I didn't enjoy any of them. Oh. So um, <laughs> possibly the ending titles, because then I knew it was over. Oh, but no. uh, then the ending titles <laughs> had this sort of sickening wavy distortion effect on them that made you feel like you were going to hurl so oh. yeah didn't even like those either so wow <laughs> most cliched fantasy moment there are so many obvious things to say for fantasy cliche there's the quest for the magical object but i think possibly the one that bugs me the most is it was all a dream oh yeah because she goes to sleep at the beginning and she wakes up at the end and <laughs> mm -hmm. i mean i would say yeah the quest the quest for the charm but also in a lot of fantasy films it's it's a quest for something that turns out to be something completely different mm. so you think it's a charm like some sort of jewel but of course it's a mirror mask which she retrieves by shoving her face into a mirror <laughs> and that's how you get it back i mean i did kind of like that the mirror mask being i guess your worst version of yourself you know yourself that you see mm. through the mirror that is not you i guess i don't know i thought that was interesting mm. favorite special effect i had no favorite special effect in this movie i thought they were all uniformly terrible and I understand the limitations of the budget and the resources of the time, but for 2005 to have special effects that are below the par of the lawnmower man, <laughs> it's not good. I'm sorry. Right. I mean, I quite like the scene with the key tower, the tower that looked like the key that she had. Mm. It looked cool. It was just this huge kind of bulbous 
suspended structure in the air that was very Dali-esque slash Escher-esque. Mm. I thought it was kind of great design, but I, I, I guess not a... Yeah, I, it was a special effect because it was all CGI, so yes. everything was an effect. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah. Best sound effect! Mine is actually a moment of sound design that I really like, and it's the scene right at the end of the movie where Helena is waiting to hear the news of whether her mother has gotten through the surgery. Uh-huh. Okay. She's watching her father, who's turned his back to her, and he's on the phone, and she's just looking up at him and all the sound sort of becomes really muffled and quiet apart from her breathing and her saying under her breath, please let it be okay, please let it be okay. Mm. And it's such a great way of recreating what it felt like for that character at that moment. Mm. Dave McKean said on the commentary that it actually came from the ADR sessions because in the monitoring booth, that's all he could hear. The soundtrack of the movie was really quiet and muffled and she was really amplified in the recording booth. And he just thought, wow, this is amazing. I'm just going to put this in the soundtrack exactly like this because Uh it really creates a special moment. So I really liked that. I Mm. thought that was a great piece of sound design. Yeah, it was a good choice. My favourite sound in the film was the eyeball spiders (laughs) that uh, the evil Helena's mum was just throwing around the way they move it sounded like kind of glassy metallic tapping clinks Mm. sometimes when i listen to sound design in films and it's such a crystal clear sound it it just gives me so much joy (laughs) (laughs) most funniest scene okay (laughs) um none so i didn't laugh once really Um, i didn't even (laughs) laugh at the movie It didn't even engage me enough to engage my scorn. So no laughter at all. Wow. (laughs) How about you? I love the scene where Valentine eats the future fruit Mm. and he sees his future self put on the mirror mask and be transported into the real world. And you see his face for the first time, his real face. Mm. And he's, for some reason, a waiter at a restaurant. (laughs) And then he wakes up from this vision and he just exclaims, no, I don't want to be a waiter. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I think I've worked in hospitality quite a lot. And so I I feel that pain. I can feel it. (laughs) It is the fate of a lot of Kiwis and Australians in London, it has to be yeah. said. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's the entirety of the waiting staff, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. that's our Movely Award. It is. And we are back to present our final verdicts for Mirror Mask, the 2005 fantasy film. Should this film be allowed to run free in the real world as a naughty's rebellious teenage girl? Or should Mirror Mask be dressed by a dozen slightly morbid music box puppets and be plunged into the dark shadows of the oubliette? 
Ooh. Well, Conrad, I am uh, pretty <laughs> sure I know what you think, but uh, please. <laughs> yes, no, I don't believe mirror masks should be set free from the oubliette. Despite my excitement about watching this, I'd never heard of it. It was a Jim Henson production with Neil Gaiman writing with a promising cast. I thought, I'm looking forward to another Muppety fantasy adventure with a slightly dark gamony twist to it mm. and i got this horrible naughty screensaver with a kenny g soundtrack <laughs> that made no sense whatsoever <laughs> and when it did narratively make sense it was heavily derivative of labyrinth and was so obviously just an attempt to recreate that and make some money and i just think bottom line if you're the jim henson company make a film with muppets in it for goodness sake yeah. that's your that's your unique selling proposition why the hell do this with terrible computer graphics that were at least 10 years old I can appreciate the creativity behind it. I can appreciate the intent. I think that all of the artists involved are really great artists. I love Dave McKean's artwork. But the film was ugly, unengaging, and I was bored. I'm sorry. Mm. So I say, <laughs> no, not even as a curiosity, I say, definitely not. But I have a feeling that you feel differently about it. <laughs> yeah, watching it now... It has not held up as much as I thought it has. Oh. The CGI has dated tremendously. It is so, so mm. inadequate mm. in conveying what should be a really good story. Yeah. I did think it was a bit derivative now, watching it again. Mm. But I do think there is so much artistic intent. And it is just a passion piece, I guess. It was a low-budget, mm. let's see if we can make this film, passion piece. And it just didn't quite succeed. A little bit too ambitious. I would love to see this in a different medium. Yeah. CGI was not a good choice. No. I do think it still is something to check out. I don't think many people will enjoy this movie, but I do think no. it is something <laughs> that has the intent. And I would free this film from the oubliette. It sounds oh. preposterous, uh, <laughs> considering what I've just said, <laughs> all my reservations for this film. But I still think there is the creative intent there. I do think it's enough. Well, I guess it's yet another time for us to use... The Coin of Fate! Serge was tweeting me yesterday saying that he was listening to the Enemy Mine episode on the train and he was chanting, Coin of Fate, Coin of Fate. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> he was imagining everyone on the train joining in. <laughs> so and cool. so they should be. <laughs> I'll do the honours. Mm, are you doing heads or tails? I think you should pick this time. Well, I was lucky with heads last time, so I'm going to go for tails. Okay, here we go. It's heads. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> there goes my winning streak. <laughs> so be free! Be a rebellious 80s slash noughties teenage girl. <laughs> <laughs> With special effects from the 90s. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Conrad, uh, what are we going to be doing next time? So we're staying in the 2000s, but we're travelling across the Atlantic to Canada to watch our very first werewolf movie with the 2000 horror film... Ginger Snaps. Oh, uh, I have to admit, I haven't seen enough werewolf movies, so this this will be a good one for me. Yeah, and it's led by a female cast, so we still have our female protagonists. Great. Yeah, it's directed by John Fawcett and starring Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel and Mimi Rogers as well as the mum, if I remember rightly. So oh, right. should be interesting. Hmm. Thanks, listeners, for joining us on this journey into bad CGI. But if you would like to follow us on our journey, we are on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yes. We love all your feedback. Yes. So please do let us know what you think of Mirror Mask. And also, yes, anything you have to say on Ginger Snaps as well. We're looking forward to watching that and talking about it with you. Mm. If you like the show... Please take the time to rate and review us on whichever podcast platform you're using to listen to us on and consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Yes. For as little as a dollar, you can suggest movies for us to cover on the show. And for five dollars, you can get access to lots of bonus additional material, including lengthier discussions with our special guests. Mm. There's lots of fun stuff in there now to listen to. Yeah, we have had quite a few guests on the show so uh why not go Mm. back and listen to some of our early episodes Uh, i recently actually watched the beginning of vhs because uh, our guest david bruckner directed one of the segments on that which i just watched and it was amazing (laughs) it's far and away the best segment in vhs controversial Mm. yes and i think he's currently working on episodes of the new creep show tv series oh wow exciting Cool. That's it, listeners. Uh, Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. What if it was the chicken?